Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bias Check-In. We're very excited for today's episode. So, Claudia, what are we checking in with? Hi everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. Today we are checking in with a guest. Joining us to talk about her latest book is Meredith Broussard, who is a data journalist, teaches at NYU's Carter Institute of Journalism, and serves as the research director at NYU's Alliance for Public Interest Technology. Among their work, she has written for The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Economist, The Atlantic, and published several books, including Artificial Unintelligence, How Computers Misunderstand the World. Her latest book just came out last month and is titled More Than a Glitch, Confronting Race, Gender, and Ability Bias in Tech. If you have followed BCI for a while, you know we had episodes about some of the many possible uses and applications of AI for industrial organizational psychology, be it applicant tracking systems or microexpression analysis of candidate video interviews. Now, we also have chatbot recruiters, ChatGPT creating job descriptions, and well, artificial intelligence is taking more and more space in organizations and in workplace discourse. We were stoked, to say the least, to get an early copy of More Than a Glitch. And we are so glad to have Meredith on our mics today to explore more of the ethical implications of using AI and how racial, gender, and ability biases bleed from the real world into the digital and the very tangible impact of algorithmic choices. So, Meredith, thank you so much for being here. It is so great to be here. Thank you for having me. We're so excited to have you, but let's jump right in. At the very beginning of your book, you mention if you're an expert in social science, you may have questions about what is happening behind the scenes in today's technology. And as STEM social scientists ourselves, that was a really good hook. And so I wanted to ask, well, first, a bit of a broader question, but what concerns do you see in the way social scientists have been using AI, data science, and technology? Well, I would like to argue for more nuance in the way that we talk about technology. Uh, there has been a dominant narrative for a very long time, a narrative that I call techno-chauvinism, the idea that technological solutions are superior. What I would argue instead is that we should use the right tool for the task, because sometimes the right tool for the task is a computer, and sometimes it's something simple like a book in the hands of a child sitting on a parent's lap. One is not inherently better than the other. So the techno-chauvinist narrative says that we should replace all human processes with computational processes, that we should let algorithms make decisions because the algorithms are more objective or more unbiased or more neutral. Uh, again, I want to push back at that, and I want us to, uh, to critically examine what we're doing. The human system is not perfect. The computational solution is also not perfect. Mm -hmm. Uh, probably what's needed is something in between. And we're not going to be able to use computers to solve every single social problem. Absolutely. And thank you for bringing us to techno-chauvinism. Um, why do you think so many of us fall into this reasoning? Well, I think that techno-chauvinism is, uh, is the belief system of a small and homogeneous group of people. And those happen to be the people who popularized computing. 
uh, one of the things that I did in my last book, Artificial Unintelligence, is I looked at the history of artificial intelligence. AI starts in 1956 with a meeting of the Dartmouth Math Department, uh, where they hammered out what became some of the core questions of the field. Uh, and one of the things that they decided at that meeting was that uh, it was going to be a big challenge of the field to get computers to be really good at chess and to beat humans at chess. Mm -hmm because the people who were at that meeting really liked chess and they thought they were intelligent and they thought, oh, well, intelligent people play chess. So if a computer can get really good at chess, it will thus be intelligent. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, well, now we do have computers that can beat humans at chess, can beat the best humans at chess. Uh, and we know that that does not make the computer intelligent, mm -hmm. right? So the, uh, the goalposts have shifted. Uh, and also, we are several decades into the digital revolution now, mm -hmm. uh, so we need to start making better decisions about when and if we use technology. My role in the podcast is historically to play devil's advocate. So I will say, on the opposite side of the spectrum, you're also not arguing that computers, algorithmic information analysis is inherently worse than human thinking or that it doesn't hold some worth it, I mean it can move through amounts of data at a speed which even the smartest human brain cannot fathom um, allows us insights that we would not capture without it we could capture maybe you know years later um, I do really like your observation in the book that we need human checks on computational decisions and we need computational checks on human decisions and we need additional safety nets plus the flexibility to change and adapt towards a better world. I will also say, though, that, of course, that's easier said than done. We have plenty of examples of when that doesn't work or hasn't worked. Um, but how do we find that balance in the real world? And can you maybe share any examples of successful uses and integration of AI and human intelligence? So it's interesting that you bring up the idea that uh, that there's kind of binary thinking around this, right? Like we often want to get into these conversations about, well, computers should do this or that. Like it's got to be one or the other. And I, I don't think that everything operates like that. Like I said before, I think we may need more nuance in our conversations. So when it comes to AI... Uh, one way I'd like to think about it is in terms of context, right? Uh, so let's take facial recognition, for example, which is a kind of AI. Uh, and there is new proposed regulation in the EU that divides uh, AI into high-risk and low-risk uses. The high-risk uses would be regulated, and the low-risk uses would not be. Right. So if we take facial recognition and we take the idea of context and we take our uh, notion of high risk and low risk uses, uh, it starts to get more clear how we can make good decisions. Right. So low risk use of facial recognition might be using facial recognition to unlock your phone. Right. The stakes are very low. It doesn't work for me half the time. It's not a big deal. There's a passcode. You know, the stakes are low not much matters. All right. So that is a low risk use that would not need to be regulated, but a high risk use of facial recognition might be police 
using facial recognition on real-time video surveillance feeds. That's a high-risk use. Uh, people of color are at greater risk of being misidentified by those facial recognition systems because of the uh, because of the bias built into facial recognition systems. So that would be a high risk use of facial rec, uh, and that would have to be registered, regulated, and monitored under the proposed EU guidelines. So I think it's really helpful to look at the context where people are using AI in order to start making decisions about it. This reminds me of the first time that I saw facial recognition being used to let us onto a plane. And I was weirded out. It worked out perfectly. But as I was getting on the plane, I was like, that was really weird. I do not like that. And now I can't imagine how many times it doesn't work out for other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I do not like the surveillance at airports at all. And like I said, facial recognition is differentially accurate. Uh, so it works better on light skin than on dark skin. It works better for men than for women. It does not include trans and non-binary folks at all. Uh, and it's, it's just, it's a brittle technology. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that I hope people take away from the book is the idea that AI does not work as well as people would like you to think. Like the marketers make much more grandiose claims uh, and you really should be very skeptical about people making claims about the efficacy of AI. Yes. Um, so Meredith, you uh, brought up it, how AI and facial recognition very often doesn't work for transgender individuals or non-binary individuals. And um, we've been following the news um, and before reading More Than a Glitch, we were aware of some of the racial biases in AI that sometimes does get to popular discourse. So it wasn't too outlandish to read about more biases, but we wanted to highlight one aspect which is much less talked about in public discourse is this gender biases and how deeply ingrained binaries um, are such as male versus female, and that's the end of the discourse in coding and technology. I know the book just came out a little under a month ago, um, but we did want to ask, in light of all of the recent transphobia in public discourse, queerphobia, have you seen any changes in digital erasure or visibility of non-binary folks? Well, the, the issue that, uh, that I start with in the book is uh, design of database systems. Uh, and database systems that only include two options for gender, male and female. Uh, and I got interested in this because when I was taught to code way back in the day, uh, I was taught that you should encode gender as a binary because a binary is a much takes up much less room in the in memory space than word or line of text. Um, and this was the standard because memory used to be really expensive, right? Now memory is really cheap. We can be sprawling about our computer programs, but uh, people often still encode gender as 
a binary inside databases. This especially is true when you are writing a program that interfaces with a legacy computational system. Uh, and so to me, this is about the ways that, uh, that gender norms of the past are included in today's computational systems, which is not anything that anybody expects because tech has this reputation of being so uh, you know, cutting edge and forward thinking. Uh, but really, it can be pretty retrograde and it can be a tool of repression. Right? So uh, now we understand uh, that gender is a spectrum, that it's a field that should be uh, editable, that users should be able to edit it themselves, uh, and that it's a better idea to represent gender as text, like maybe put in a drop down and have lots of options for different genders uh, when you're designing a form, right? Uh, one of the things that I am uh, particularly delighted by is that my university, NYU, uh, has changed its uh, computational systems so that uh, it displays people's preferred name uh, instead of uh, their passport mm -hmm. name, their legal name. Uh, and this is like, this is great for everybody. Uh, and also I, our systems, uh, like when I'm a, as a professor, when I look at my list of students, now I can see my students' preferred names and their pronouns. That wasn't the case 10 years ago. Uh, so it takes a lot of effort and it takes uh, will and it takes funding to update our computational systems so that they evolve along with social norms. I mean, I learned SPSS not too long ago and it was still the same. Zero equals male, one equals female, and that's it. Then as a consultant, when we were creating assessments and I was in charge of creating them from scratch and we were, um, collecting this demographic information I wanted to include everyone but the research didn't really tell me like this is the one way to do it and I think you're right just leaving it blank letting people tell you how they identify themselves is the best way to go now and then think about coding later um, but you talk about NYU and teaching in the book you made an interesting point about sharing the story of how academic exams and grading were handled during the pandemic. For those out of the loop, like we were <laughs> until we wrote your book, uh, during the pandemic, a lot of new issues were solved through technology and AI. One of them being high school students not being able to sit their IB ex final exams. We both sat our IVs and were dumbfounded to read how the institutions decided to assign final grades based on teachers assumptions and historical data from the school's locations. Um, you tell the story of one particular student who was a statistical outlier, Castañeda, who brilliantly advocated for herself against college administrators. But the short version of this question is, how is this considered ethical? Like assigning grades based on historical performance of others and on the teacher's biased assumptions on how the student could perform. 
Oh, it is a completely outrageous story. And we are, uh, you know, because we're on audio, you can't see listeners, you can't see my eyes rolling, but like my, my eyes just roll when I think about this story. So what happened is the International Baccalaureate, uh, which is this prestigious secondary school diploma, I decided that because they couldn't administer the in-person exams, they were going to use an algorithm to generate imaginary grades for real students based on their predictions of how the students would have done if they had taken the tests that they didn't take because you you couldn't put students together in a room at that point because pandemic. It's a legitimate data science strategy, and yet it makes no sense, right? So... Yes, we did. The administrators did have data on how the students uh, at particular schools had done in the past. And they had some data on that year's graduating class. And they decided to use legitimate data science methods to predict scores. Right? And it became a problem when they actually assigned those predictive predicted scores to students. Because what happened is the same thing that happens every time you try and predict uh, predict scores in education, which is that uh, the algorithm predicted that the kids at poor schools would do badly, and they predicted that kids at rich schools would do well. Because, you know, that's how, like, that's what we see in education statistics. Rich kids do better than poor kids at poverty gets in the way of, uh, of education. Uh, and so it's not fair though, to just assign, uh, you know, assign kids to a particular fate based on, uh, where they went to school. So Isabel Castaneda, uh, was an excellent student. Uh, she was a heritage Spanish speaker, and this algorithm predicted that she would fail her Spanish IB exam. And this is a student who was a straight A student, again, spoke Spanish every day of her life, actually learned several other languages, was planning to be a professional translator. Like This is not a student who was going to fail her exam. Right. So it's just a, it's a really clear example of how algorithms uh, can make bad decisions and administrators also made a bad decision by believing in the algorithmic results and believing that the algorithm could uh, could replace a human process. I am really pleased to say that Isabel uh, took the story that I wrote about her situation and other stories that were written about her situation I took them to the college administrators uh, at the university where she had been admitted and said, listen, uh, these scores are wrong. Uh, Here is some media coverage that, you know, that backs up my assertion. And the administrators, to their great credit, said, "Okay," and gave her the college credits that she would have gotten uh, had she gotten excellent scores on her IB exams. And this is really important because IB scores, high enough IB scores at certain universities can get you up to two years of college credit, right? Which is an enormous savings and especially important for folks who are struggling to pay for college. I remember when I saw Davies, so many of us had conditional offers. And so 
you know, you work so hard to get yourself a good opportunity and then what some system decides that sure you worked really hard but statistically you're not likely to get that score so sorry we're gonna take it away that was just ridiculous yeah it's ridiculous it's heartbreaking like that's not really how the system is supposed to work as we mentioned in the very beginning of the episode When it comes to AI and IO psychology, we've seen its applications in tracking systems, SEO analysis of candidate profiles, hacks to automate repetitive tasks, being more productive. More recently, a lot of memes about losing jobs to chat GPT or other algorithms. Um, Susie was just telling me yesterday, chat GPT passed the bar. So bye-bye lawyers. We don't need you anymore. Um, But we found this figure from um, a report that the World Economic Forum released in 2020 that estimated that by 2025, 85 million jobs may be displaced by a shift in labor division between humans and machines. And I think we all grew up hearing about how manual workers and quote-unquote unskilled laborers were going to be put to the curb by robots in almost every field and that they would either have to go up to school to upskill or be replaced. Um, It somehow seems like that same technology threat is now being felt by knowledge workers and service providers. Do you think that A, that simile is valid? And if it is, should knowledge workers be worried that AI will come for their job. All right. So this is a, this is kind of a complicated issue. Uh, let me start with uh, chat GPT passing the bar, right? Uh, it sounds really cool, but then when you look at how chat GPT works and the data that it's trained on, it becomes less impressive, right? So chat GPT is trained with uh something like 570 gigabytes of data that is scraped from uh, from the open web. That data includes many, many, many sample bar exams. And the bar exam is a multiple choice test, right? So what we're really saying is ChatGPT uh, scored high on a multiple choice test that was part of its training data. That's not that surprising. Like if you feed a test into a computer and then you make the computer take the test or take a test that's really like it, uh, you know, a multiple choice exam that is easily graded on the computer, right? It's not, it's not human-like intelligence. It's not legal reasoning. It's just getting a high score on a multiple choice test, right? Uh, So... I am not particularly enthusiastic about all the myth-making that is happening around ChatGPT. I think AI is really cool. I think ChatGPT is really fun to play with, uh, but I am not super concerned about it taking over the world. Uh, In terms of, is it going to eliminate jobs? I think that uh, people need jobs. And so I'm not really enthusiastic about uh, using machines to eliminate jobs. Uh, I think that the people who profit from 
eliminating jobs are very excited about uh, about using new technologies to eliminate jobs. Uh, but I think one of the things that uh, that the eliminate jobs crowd is not thinking about is the need to maintain these technologies, right? So even if you did say replace some essential knowledge worker function with uh, you know with some GPT product, uh, you would still need to constantly update the GPT, like as the world changes, right? You're going to need to pay more and more and more for it. You're going to need to hire people to tune it, right? So it's not like replacing humans with machines is actually cheaper at this point. Like it's just, it's displacing the costs elsewhere. In a recent interview, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you were saying you were impressed at how quickly people were challenging ChatGPT. But now we're seeing updates come out a lot faster and more being more integrated with popular discourse. Um, how do you see these two interacting? Well, I... I mean, I, I do remain impressed that people did not uh, just accept the open AI narrative this time, that they pushed back at ChatGPT and said, hey, let's also talk about some of the problems. Uh, I think that the problems with the technology are pretty obvious. Uh, and I also am really glad that uh, that most people know now about uh, the possibility for toxicity, uh, for generative AI to generate uh, toxic images or toxic text, uh, and everything that was uh, foretold in the St Stochastic Parrots paper uh, written by Emily Bender and uh, Timnit Gebru and Margaret Mitchell, like all of those things have come to pass. Uh, I think that... Uh, the Stochastic Parrots episode uh, really brought it home to people that uh, there are problems inherent in large language models in generative AI. Uh, so it's good that we're talking about the problems in addition to talking about, you know, whatever uh, tech successes there are. Uh, I, I, it's certainly impressive that uh, OpenAI brought out GPT-4 so quickly after GPT-3. Uh, is it dramatically better? I don't know. I haven't I haven't paid close enough attention. Uh, to me, uh, ChatGPT is a really nifty interface. It's fun to play with, uh, but I don't find it really useful because you can't trust anything that it generates, right? Because it's it's generating sentences that look like they should be real sentences, but they are totally unmoored from truth. And so it's not clear to me why it's useful to have text generated that is that is not true. That is so true. And I think people really forget that 
Claudia, I don't think I told you this, but I am on the job search and someone recommended that I look up on ChatGPT um, DEI consulting firms in Chicago so that I could apply to them because, you know, you don't know everything and this is open source and it might have firms that I haven't been thinking of. And so I did, and it spat out this list of 10 DEI firms in Chicago. Little problem, when I went to look them up to apply, none of them existed. So not only were they not hiring, they just did not exist. I think uh, I I also uh, like the stories of people trying to use it for academic citations, and it will generate uh, you know it will generate what looks mm-hmm. like academic prose with the citation, and then you click on the citation and it doesn't exist. And ChatGPT has just manufactured the publication and the you know and the article. I mean, and so that's also a note to anyone who's ever thought of using it for any kind of academic purpose please don't (laughs) i've seen um my husband teaches uh sixth grade and his students started asking him for the most outlandish science-based questions and so we're just waiting for the day that they find out about chat gpt and think about using it at school yeah so something I've seen a lot of is uh, teachers doing uh, critical technology exercises with ChatGPT. So they will introduce it to students and say, "Okay, let's uh, you know let's put in a prompt and let's take the output and then let's critically evaluate this. Like, what did it do well? What did it do badly? When is it ethical to use uh, generative AI? When is it not ethical to use generative AI?" Uh, and so that's been a really popular assignment. That would be very useful, honestly, even beyond the classroom. Um, but okay, so ChatGPT is still a little bit less than a solution to all the problems um, of the workplace and beyond. But I do realize that we didn't ask you one very important question. So ChatGPT is less than a solution, but your book is more than a glitch. Can you tell us a little bit? about the story behind the title, but we don't want to give too much away, but that is a very good story. Oh, thank you. Um, well, so we talk about uh, we talk about problems in technology as glitches sometimes, right? There's a glitch and there's a bug. A glitch is just a blip. It's a momentary issue that's easily fixed in the code. A bug is something that is more longstanding, can maybe cause development to grind to a halt. And when we have uh, when we have incidents of uh, technology manifesting bias in terms of race or gender or disability, we tend to talk about it as a glitch. So when Google Images labeled uh, images of black men as gorillas, it got called a glitch. Uh, when Safia Noble wrote about uh, the way that Google Search uh, would return images of girls when you searched white girls and then when you search black girls it would return porn right that was called a glitch what i argue in the book is that we should not look at these things as glitches as momentary blips we should look at them as indicators of larger social problems 
And we should take it as an opportunity to examine what's really going on with technology and question whether we are relying too much on technology to solve a social problem. Because technology is not going to save us from our social problems. Realize and reflect on and why we wanted to ask the story on the mic uh, of the title. But as we're coming to the end of the episode, we wanted to thank you for your time and coming onto our mic. Before you go, though, we like to close BCI episodes with a soapbox moment, a space for our guests to share their big ideas, the main takeaway point, the TLDR of the episode for our listeners. Uh, well, more than a glitch, confronting race, gender, and ability bias in tech uh, is an argument for more nuance in the way that we approach technology. Uh, I talk about a lot of harms that have been committed by AI systems in medicine, in education, in policing. Uh, and then the book is not just a bummer. Uh, I talk about harms and then I also talk about solutions. Uh, I am very optimistic about the field of public interest technology, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's about making technology that's in the public interest. And I'm also really optimistic about the possibilities in algorithmic auditing. So what we do in algorithmic auditing is we look at AI systems, we open up the black boxes, and then we have really hard conversations about what we find inside. Uh, because most automated systems, most AI systems are discriminating uh, based on race or gender or disability. Uh, it's very hard to acknowledge that. It's hard to admit that the thing you've spent millions of dollars on developing uh, is, is biased. Uh, and it can feel uncomfortable to have those conversations. So what I'm hoping is that... Uh, People come away from the book having learned a lot about how technology works and having learned some ways to start having these difficult conversations. Because I think that uh, updating our technology uh, and updating our society at the same time, you know, working together, uh, I think that's what's going to get us toward a better world. Thank you so much, Meredith, again for chatting with us, giving us a preview and a little look behind the curtain of the algorithms with more than a glitch, confronting race, gender, and ability bias in tech. Um, now, for anyone, and we hope everyone, interested in the book, where can they find it? Uh, it is available everywhere that books are sold. Uh, and you can find me online at meredithbroussard.com or on uh, most of the social platforms. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you so much. So... Dear BCI listeners, as always, let us know what you thought of this episode. How do you see AI in your daily life uh, and work? Slide into our DMs at Bias Check-In Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, or in our Facebook group. And send us your thoughts at info at We will talk to you next week. Bye.